So before we get started here this morning in this this message, we're going to talk about grace and, and the love of Jesus and such things on that theme. Let's have a word of prayer together. So I invite you to, to bow your heads with me at this time. Father in heaven, we do thank you so very, very much for your love and care for us, your mercy, your long-suffering, and the most precious gift you've ever given to humanity, Jesus of Nazareth. And what he has done for us, we are so thankful for. He not only died uh, so that we might live, uh, but he showed us how to live. And he has promised to write his character traits into our lives. Uh, we pray for the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon us, that, that we are willing for the Holy Spirit to come into our hearts and our minds and do this work, the work that you've promised to do and that you will not fail to do, if we are willing to be made willing. We're thankful for this Sabbath day and the opportunity we have to come together here and worship Thee in spirit and in truth and to gain a rest, not only physical rest, uh, which we all need, uh, but a spiritual rest as well from the battles that we have each and every day. And Lord, we lift up those who are sick and ill, especially those of our church in Michigan. Think of Rollin and Susan, uh, Jerry who's needing uh, some work, uh, she needs income. Uh, different type of job. We pray you'll be very close to her. We lift up uh, Rollins' mother, uh, Betty, uh, and you know the situation there much, much better than we do, Lord. We pray that you will strengthen her and help her to overcome this illness. Uh, she's been a dear saint for a long time, Lord. So please be near to her. And we think of uh, Susan, Susan's mother. We think of Christopher too. Please be very near to them. Give me the words to speak this morning. It's an awesome uh, theme that we need to uh, have a right understanding about. So I pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit will uh, soften hearts, prepare them for the truth. Again, we thank you for Jesus and pray this in His blessed name. Amen. <clears throat> I've entitled this message, Saved by Grace. That's not original, is it? But uh, it is true, we are saved by grace. And I want to begin in the book of Acts, chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, it says that while Paul and Silas were answering the Macedonian call in Philippi, that they were beaten, they were put in jail without a trial. And, you know, I've seen today uh, Christians get upset when they're persecuted, but if you're doing the will of of Jesus, there will be persecution, and it shouldn't be a surprise. Now, none of us like that, uh, but uh, it should call us to more prayer, shouldn't it? But here is Paul and Silas. They were uh, giving the gospel there. They were beaten. They were put in jail without trial. We go to Acts chapter 16, begin with verse 26. It says, And suddenly there was a great earthquake. Now, sit, here they are. They're sitting in jail. Okay, There was no trial. They were just thrown in jail. And while they were there, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he, threw, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and, 
and brought them out, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? That's the most important question, I think, that any human being can ask. What must I do to be saved? There's implied that there's some doing there involved. And Paul and Silas, they gave the jailer a very simple answer, didn't they? If you look at verse 31, what was it that they said? They said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. They said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's a misunderstanding about that. That word believe. We'll get to that in just a moment. But that night was, you could say, a successful one night evangelistic event. (laughs) No sermons were preached though, were they? Essentially. It consisted of a song service. You recall they were in in prison and they were singing. And then they had this earthquake and and the jailer thought, well, they're all gone now. Um, I will be put to death. I'll I'll do the honorable thing myself. And Paul said, don't do that. And so this guy was uh, in awe. And there's Paul and Silas, they're in chains, they sang in prison, praising the Lord. And this jailer, he, he wanted to have what they had. They want, he wanted to have assurance. He wanted to live. And so they told him to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you, friends, that too often we make salvation very complicated when it isn't. Salvation is not complicated. It's simple enough that a child can understand it. And Jesus said so in the Gospels. All you have to do is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now often in the Bible, believe, you look up in the English translations, you look in your Strong's, belief is often translated as faith in the Bible. The Greek word translated believe means to believe something enough to make a commitment to it. It's not just merely an intellectual knowledge. Oh, I believe, and that's it. That's not what it means. It's not the full force of the Greek intent there, of the word. It means to to believe it, to make a mental assent, but enough of one to make a commitment to that. It's a commitment. To believe in Jesus is to make a commitment to to him. Thayer defines the word believe as this to think to be true, to be persuaded of, to credit, I like this, to place confidence in. To place confidence in. To make a commitment to. So not only do you, do you think it to be true, but you 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 place confidence in it. You make a commitment to it. Make a commitment that Jesus is, is Lord and He's a Savior. Now, the Roman Empire, they did understand the meaning of the word Lord because approximately two-thirds of the population was in slavery with only one-third of the population as free. And those who were unfortunate to be slaves, they had a Lord. And their master was called their Lord. And that master, or they used the word Lord, had absolute authority over their lives. Absolute authority. 
In fact, if the slave did something that the Lord did not like, he had the authority to kill him without a trial because he was a slave. So when Paul said, believe in the Lord, the jailer knew exactly what the word Lord meant. And we get... Uh, we, that has been lost, I, could, I should say, in translation, I think, in today's society. In Western society today, there are many who say they believe in Jesus as their Lord, but do they really know what the word believe means? Now, Jesus had something to say to those who call Him Lord, but refused to commit to Him, didn't He? In Luke chapter 6 and verse 46... Jesus said, And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Is Jesus really Lord to those who disobey Him? And are they guaranteed salvation? You need to think about that. But, you know, Jesus predicted that in the last generation, this generation I believe we're living in, this very thing would happen. He went on in Matthew Chapter 7, as you uh, go to uh, the first book of the Gospel, verse 21. Notice what Jesus says about this. He says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Remember, what we talk about, what the word Lord meant? To a slave it meant that that master had complete authority over their life. So there are people who come to Jesus and they say, Lord, Lord, but they haven't given Jesus complete authority over their life. And this is what Jesus is saying here. He says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? You get that? wonderful works. And we're talking about grace today, belief, faith, trust. But they come and they say, haven't we done many, many wonderful works? Haven't we earned it? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And that word iniquity is a stronger sense of the word sin it means more of an open rebellion, not a sin of ignorance. But I want you to notice that these are people who call Jesus Lord, but they do not do what He says. So they break His law. Because Jesus wants us to keep His law. And let me tell you, there's no nation in the world that does not have laws good or bad, every nation has laws. Judges in the courts of all countries consider a person to be a loyal citizen if what? He keeps the law, right? Well, God also has laws. And He decides the loyalty of the citizen of His government by keeping His law. And in the final judgment, God's going to ask the same question that worldly judges ask. Have you kept the law? And this is where confusion comes in about grace and being doers of the will of God. Hopefully we can get it straightened out here this morning. I read one time, um, oh, it's been a while, 
was, I was doing some research on the law of God and on laws. Do you know it's estimated that there, there have been over 35 million different human laws made throughout time? Now, how they come to that conclusion, um, I, I mean, you go back in the written record and then you make some assumptions. But 35 million different human laws. Now, you think about that and you compare it to God. God's government has only one law, and of that law, there are ten parts. <laughs> The whole universe, I mean, think about this. The whole universe can be governed with one law that a child can read and understand. And what is it that Jesus said to us in John 14 and verse 15? He said, if you love me, you know, we live in a generation that talks about love, love, love. That's what the gospel is. The good news is love. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. That's interesting, isn't it? Let me read this to you. This is from the book Faith and Works, page 16. She says, Let this point be fully settled in every mind. If we accept Christ as a Redeemer, we must accept Him as a Ruler. We cannot have the assurance and perfect confiding trust in Christ as our Savior until we acknowledge Him as our King and are obedient to His commandments. Thus we evidence our allegiance to God. How do we evidence our allegiance to God? We're obedient to His commandments. That's what Jesus meant when He said, If you love me, you keep my commandments. You don't do it to earn salvation. You're doing it because you love me. Right? And that shows our uh, uh, allegiance to God. That's the evidence of it. So my question is, is Jesus the Lord of your life? I think many people today want Jesus to be the Savior of their life. I see that quite a lot in Christendom. But they don't want Him to be the Lord of their life. Oh, they'll show up on Sunday, they'll go to church, and they'll praise the Savior for being the Savior. But He's not their Lord. And in essence, they're saying, like you read in Luke 19 and verse 14, they're saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. He's not going to rule us. They've given in to the argument from the devil. That would restrict our freedom, our liberty. But let me ask you a question. Is it a bad thing to have Jesus as the Lord of one's life? I think there is a misunderstanding about the true character of God that prejudices the mind against Him. And I shared this a few days ago. I was thinking about this. I'll share it with you. My wife reminded me one time of a story that Red Skelton told about one of his teachers. Incidentally, the teacher's name was Mr. Laswell. (laughs) But he spelled it with two S's. But this teacher overheard the class saying the Pledge of Allegiance, but they said it without much enthusiasm. So he addressed the class and he explained the pledge to them by breaking it down. 
it helped the class to gain a right understanding of why there was a pledge of allegiance. And I'll tell you that we see a lot of people today who broadcast the scripture John 3.16. That's probably the most famous scripture in all of the Bible. They'll broadcast that scripture in many different ways. They'll have signs, they'll have bumper stickers. I've seen the guy have uh, you know, the rainbow haircut. You remember that guy? He'd pop up in different sporting events. <laughs> and he'd hold up a sign that said John 3.16. I've seen him in tattoos on people. All types of signs in different ways of saying John 3.16. Yet like Red Skelton's class, the true meaning, I believe, has been lost in translation. And so for just a moment here, I'd like to break John 3.16 down and explain it a bit like you know, Red's teacher, Mr. Laswell, did with the pledge. <laughs> because the love of God and His salvation really is a simple thing. First off, John 3.16 has seven parts after recognizing God. Because right off the bat it says, for God, right? For God. That brings us to the to acknowledge the almighty authority. There is a God. There is a creator. For God. And so, here's the first part. He says, so loved the world. And that's the strongest motive known in creation. It's love. It's that word agape. That Greek word agape. It's an unselfish charity. It's not self-serving. It looks to serve others. And this says that He gave. For God so loved the world that He gave. Again, there's that unselfish generosity. Or you could say grace. It's a gift. It's given to us. What did He give? His only begotten Son. That's the greatest thing He could give. If you contemplate this, you'll realize that that is the greatest thing that the Father could give was His Son. Then it says that whosoever, and that's the widest welcome that has ever been given, whosoever, that encapsulates anybody who's willing, whosoever believeth in Him, and that's the easiest escape that's ever been given, and there believeth, that is, not only that mental assent, to believe mentally, but to commit to Him should not perish. And there's your divine deliverance. There's that deliverance from death. But have what? Not only will you not perish, but you're going to have everlasting life. So a priceless existence is giving to you. So if you put it all together, John 3.16 looks like this. The one who has almighty authority, motivated by the strongest motivation. By grace, generously gave the greatest gift He could give to grant us the widest welcome and the easiest escape through divine deliverance so that we might have a priceless existence. Boy, I love the expression in the Greek. There's so much more to it than the English. And it's this subject that I want to talk about. This, this grace of God that we're admonished to talk about the most. Let me share this with you. It's from Manuscript Releases, Volume 3, page 420. She said, There's not a point that needs to be dwelt upon more earnestly 
repeated more frequently or established more firmly in the minds of all than the impossibility of fallen man meriting anything by his own best good works. Salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Let the subject be made distinct and plain that it is not possible to affect anything in our standing before God or in the gift of God to us through creature merit. In other words, works. You cannot earn it. And we need to, as their point is here, we need to, to dwell upon it more earnestly and repeat it more frequently. Grace, the grace of God, saved by grace. I found it interesting that when you do a word search in the King James Version Bible for the word grace, you'll find 159 hits. 159 hits. That's including in the Hebrew too. And essentially the Hebrew word and the Greek word mean the same. And Thayer defines grace in this way. It says, Of the merciful kindness by which God, exerting His holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and kindles them to the exercise of the Christian virtues. Wow, what a definition for grace. It's much more than just a free gift. There's a lot more involved in it, isn't there? It's much more than just believing. There's a lot more involved, isn't there? Isn't it amazing to see that God has such interest in our life? Praise the Lord. Praise His name. And if we're going to inherit eternal life, we need to understand that there's nothing we can ever do to provide any part of the merit of that. It's a gift that comes through grace alone to the person who believes, who commits, who trusts that God will finish the work that He starts in our hearts and minds. One of the greatest deceptions of all time that has permeated all heathen religions and also the Christian world, sad to say, is the idea that we are saved by faith and works. People get confused about this. And it's not just because they're confused by it, it's because we have an enemy who likes to confuse us, see? He's the author of confusion, isn't he? Martin Luther, he fought this idea during the Reformation. The belief that a person is saved by faith and works. You see, it opens the door for believing that not only your own good works, but also those of others, and even the saints, give merit to salvation. What's that sound like? Hmm? You know, the Catholic religion, they have certain... Uh, saints that they pray to? See that? See the Pandora's box that's opened up because of that? But let's have, let's have spiritual understanding, okay, beloved? The book of James says that faith without works is dead, right? Faith without works is dead. True faith, see, produces good works. However, those good works have no merit. They have no saving power of themselves. This is what James is saying. 
he's saying salvation is purely is purely a gift from God. It can never be earned, but if you have true faith, it's going to be seen in your works. Remember the old example I always used to give. What was it? Well, a pear tree doesn't uh, uh, doesn't grow pears to prove it's a pear tree. It grows pears because it's a pear tree. Or in your case, peach. You love peaches, right? The salvation that we receive from God is is a gift. It can never be earned. You see, friends. Notice this from Manuscript Releases, Volume 3, page 420. Should faith and works purchase the gift of salvation for anyone, then the Creator is under obligation to the creature. Here is an opportunity for falsehood to be accepted as true. If any man can merit salvation by anything he may do, then he is in the same position as the Catholic to do penance for his sins. Salvation, then, is partly of debt that may be earned as wages. If man cannot, by any of his good works, merit salvation, then it must be wholly of grace, received by man as a sinner because he receives and believes in Jesus. It is wholly a free gift. You know, when you work or you have a job, your employer is obligated to give you the appropriate wages because you've earned them. But a man cannot, by any of his good works, earn salvation. It's not possible, friends. Grace is not earned. It's a, it's a free gift from God through the merits of Christ. So salvation is through Christ only. And this is a gift that cannot be earned. What if you had somebody, a friend of yours, come to you and they want to give you this gift and you want to do something for it? Wouldn't that be an insult? No, they want to give you a gift. And here, God is wanting to give to us the greatest of all gifts, and we, by our actions, are saying, no, I want to earn that. I can do it myself. But you can't, because salvation is through Christ. It's a gift. It cannot be earned. You know, you read in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, he actually wrote about this a great deal. Probably one of the other most famous, famous, let me say, scriptures that you may find that people share is Ephesians chapter 2. It's specifically verse 8. I'm going to read verses 8 and 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and not and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. That's pretty plain, isn't it? It's a gift. Verse 9. Not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not of works. It's a gift from God. In Romans 4, beginning verse, verse 2, Paul said this, he said, For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. What? Abraham did a lot of good works, didn't he? Did Paul say, oh, because of those good works, God considered it 
and counted it to him for righteousness? No. Paul's saying that Abraham committed himself to God. He believed God, and that was what was counted unto him for righteousness. Now notice verse 4. Now to him that worketh is a reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. You see the difference? Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. It's a gift God wants to give to us, friends. And Paul emphasized this point because of the error being taught in Christ's day that a person was saved by grace, but they had a work to do first. And I run into this quite a lot, even in Adventism, especially in some of these, uh, uh, the fanaticisms that are coming in, like the feast days and such. That's nothing new. That goes back to the time of Christ. And here Paul is he's he's pointing this out because of this error that was pervading at that time. That they had a work to do first. They had to be circumcised first, or you know, then they would receive grace, right? Or they had to to um, go to Jerusalem for these certain feasts. They had to cut their hair a certain length so many times a, a month. You know, once every 30 days is what, what it was. It had to be a certain length. These things, they were saying, well, you had a work to do first before you can receive the, the free gift of God. But Paul says that salvation is through grace alone. It's a free gift. It does not come because of anything that you do. Go back to the book Faith and Works, page 20. It, and that's she's speaking of salvation, it is wholly a free gift. Justification by faith is placed beyond controversy, and all this controversy is ended as soon as the matter is settled that the merits of fallen man in his good works can never procure eternal life for him. It just can't happen. You see, the devil pulls a trick on those who understand that there is nothing you can do to save yourself. I'm going to tell you, hundreds of millions of Christians throughout time and in the world today believe that the church can save you if you're a member or or if you're baptized. If you're a member of the Catholic Church, you need to be an active participant in the seven sacraments, which, if observed, enable you to receive the grace of God. That's what they teach. But let me state this bluntly. The church is unable to save anyone. Let me repeat that. The church is unable to save anyone. And there will be billions of people lost who've been baptized. Billions of people who have partaken of the communion supper will not be in the kingdom of heaven, friends. You see, we cannot save ourselves and the church cannot save us either. I'll let you in on that little secret. The same deception that's popular today was also popular in the days of Christ. 
the people believed that if they were not connected to Israel, the church, they would not be saved. Even Christ's disciples believed that. That tradition. And please don't get confused by what I'm saying. We are to be organized as the people of God, but the organization will not and cannot save you. I want you to notice what John records in John chapter 9. He records an incident when Jesus gave sight to the man who was born blind. you remember that? And there was a big church trial, and before it was over, because the man confessed Christ, what happened to him? He was disfellowshipped. Let's read about it. John chapter 9, verse 18. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him that had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son, who ye say was born blind? How then doth he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. I want you to notice something, what they're doing here. And they understood what they were doing and what they were saying. Okay? They weren't coming right out and confessing Christ. Notice how they answer this question. Oh, we know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But by what means he now seeth, we know not. Or who hath opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age, ask him. He shall speak for himself. What are they doing? I mean, everybody in town, including his parents, knew what had happened because the news had gone all over town. So they lied. They were lying to the leaders. Why did they lie? I mean, surely they knew that it was wrong to lie and they knew that no liars will be in heaven. Why were they lying? Look at the next verse, John 9, verse 22. It gives us the answer. These words spake his parents because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. So if you confess that Jesus was the Christ, what would happen? You'd be disfellowshipped. And they were under one of the most powerful delusions that can happen to a person. You see, they'd been taught that if you were disfellowshipped from the synagogue, you would not have eternal life. But does God say that anywhere in the Bible? There's conditions, isn't there? And ironically, you think about this story, the very thing they did do, which was lie, would keep the, keep them out of the kingdom, wouldn't it? But they thought that as long as they stayed in and had that connection with the church, that they would be saved. If they really wanted to be saved, they would have had to allow themselves to be disfellowshipped and not lie. Now let me tell you that this story is important because this has happened millions of times since then. The very thing that people think will assure them of eternal life is the very thing that guarantees their destruction. And Jesus' own disciples at the time believed that. 
They had that same belief. Let me share this from the book The Desire of Ages, page 675. I am the true vine, John 15.1. The Jews had always regarded the vine as the most noble of plants and a type of all that was powerful, excellent, and fruitful. Israel had been represented as a vine which God had planted in the promised land. The Jews based their hope of salvation on the fact of their connection with Israel. But Jesus says, I am the real vine. Think not that through a connection with Israel you may become partakers of the life of God and inheritors of His promise. Through me alone is spiritual life received. You see what had happened? They exchanged God for Israel. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, are we connected with the true vine? Baptism with water is a symbol, and it's important, isn't it? But if you don't have what it represents, the symbol will not save you. Peter explains what baptism represents in Acts chapter 2. Notice what he says in verses 37 and 38. He says, now when they heard this, and they heard this is uh, right at Pentecost, and Peter comes out and he gives this sermon. Okay? He gives this sermon. And there were thousands of Jews around, okay, because of the, the feast and the celebration. And so he gives this sermon about how they crucified Jesus. In verse 37 he says, Now when they heard this, this crowd of people, they were pricked in their heart. And they said unto Peter, and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Started this message with the jailer, remember? What was his question to Paul? What must I do to be saved? And these people were asking the very same thing. What shall we do? Verse 38, Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Peter is saying here is that baptism by water represents baptism by the Holy Spirit. And so don't misunderstand me when I say the church will not save you. Even though the church will not save you, we are to belong to one, aren't we? Yeah, I'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> First Corinthians chapter 12. We are to belong to one. That's a part of gospel order. We've studied that, haven't we? First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. And so, baptism, that water baptism, is the door into the church, into membership. It's symbolic, see. But water baptism 
that's just what it is. It's a symbol. It's a symbol that won't save you if you don't have what it represents. You become a member of the body of Christ when the Holy Spirit baptizes you. And that's what Peter was saying. Kind of like if you go out and you get married, that's a symbol that you're married, but if you go out and have an affair... Yeah, having a wedding and making that commitment, a wedding is a symbol of a marriage. And like you're saying, and if you're unfaithful... The symbol's not going to, you know, say or, that you're faithful. Or, it's not going to make you faithful. Or even if you're not unfaithful, but if you, like, live in separate homes, are you married? <laughs> yeah. Are you coming together as one? No. And as you were talking about, Hebrews chapter 10, this is where we find this. So I don't want you to misunderstand. This is very important. Gospel order is very important. But the organization won't save you. The church won't save you. The symbol doesn't save you. Okay? Here Paul says, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. We're always to encourage one another. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. That's the day of of God spoken of there. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. There is that, that command, you could say, for organization, for coming together. There's, there is a lot in, in uh, the Adventist movement, the historic Adventist movement. There are a number of people who don't want to be organized. And this is a repeat, you know, the Advent uh, awakening in the mid-1800s. There were people who, you know, when the, the three angels' messages were given, they said, we're to come out of Babylon. Organization is Babylon, so we're not going to be organized. And the devil always does that, doesn't he? He takes from one extreme to the other. He bounces back and forth. And people get trapped in that net. So don't think that the church will save you, but it's important that we not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And then Paul goes on, he says, For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. So he's saying here, we need to come together in organization. If we don't and we refuse it, we're grieving away the Holy Spirit who leads us into being organized. And so that's very important. So baptism is a symbol. It, you're all, you also become a member of the local church body. For that's where Christ is. And if that is where Christ is, remember we studied this, then that is His church, right? Christ is not going to be where sin is condoned or taught. A church that's in apostasy has forsaken Christ as their head. They've chosen tradition or man or, you know, they've been deceived. They are, there was a falling away of the truth. That's what apostasy means. A falling away. Stepping off the platform of truth. And one cannot be safe in such a church, no matter if the minister is nice or not. <laughs> I'll tell you, there are many nice ministers in fallen Babylon, friends. There are even truths taught in fallen Babylon. <gasps> It's not all error. But what's the Lord tell us to do? 
He says to come out of her, my people. There are many baptized people in Babylon, friends. And becoming a member of the body of Christ means being an active participant in the family. Active in supporting the church body by your participation. As Paul was saying, in provoking unto love and good works, keeping each other lifted up unto the Lord, to the overcoming of sins, to that perfect man in Christ Jesus. So let me, let me just reiterate again, membership in the local church doesn't save you, but it can help strengthen you against the attacks of the enemy by being around the faithful and spreading the truth. We're to be organized. You know, Satan loves to have us all separated into little atoms here and there or staying on our own. And frankly, it makes his mission much easier to accomplish. But the Holy Spirit will lead a person into all truth. He'll lead a person to join with the faithful local church if there is a faithful local church. That's the trick of it all, isn't it? The world we're living in today. Now you go to Acts chapter 19, you read about where Paul met some people who'd been baptized, and he asked if they'd received the Holy Spirit. And they said they'd been baptized into John's baptism. You remember that? And what did Paul say to them? He said, well, you need to be baptized again to receive the Holy Spirit. And that clearly indicates that baptism is not really valid if you have not received the Holy Spirit. There are many people, friends, who have attended church all their life and decide to be re-baptized because they didn't know uh, before what they were doing or, or they weren't prepared. You could say that they really didn't receive the Holy Spirit. They had a mental assent that this is the right thing to do, but they never gave themselves wholly to the Lord. And if you've not received the Holy Spirit, well, let me tell you, the church cannot save you. And so the big question is, are you connected with Jesus? That's what it's about, isn't it? Jesus said, I am the true vine. There are two things working to connect the branches to the grapevines. I've never grown grapes, but I've done a lot of reading about it. There are two things working to connect the branches to the grapevines. You have the outer connection, which is called the lignite in the wood of the outer connection. It just holds them physically to the vine. The outer connection, you could liken that to church membership. It's the outer connection, right? When a person is baptized with water and makes a profession, they are now a, quote, member of the church outwardly, right? It has an outward connection. But if the life sap does not flow through the inner part of that vine into the branch, what happens? It's going to die, isn't it? This is described in John chapter 15. The dead branch is a person who is a member of the church professing to be a Christian. They profess to be getting ready for Jesus to come and they look like they're connected on the outside. But the only trouble is there's no life in them. 
when working with grapevines, you learn to trim and tie up the vines. And every dead branch is cut off. It's not producing. So you have to cut it off. So notice what Jesus says in John 15. We'll begin with verse 1. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. So we're not going to produce fruit if we're not abiding in Christ, friend. And Jesus says in verse 5, He says, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, He's cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire and they're burned. They're burned. They don't produce. They can profess anything they want, but they don't produce anything. They don't produce any fruit. Let me ask you, friends, is the life of Christ coming into your life? And is the Holy Spirit working a transformation in your life? Is your life changing? Can you look back last year, the year before, ten years ago, and compare that time to this time? Do you see changes, good changes, righteous changes? Have you seen changes in the way you think and the way you act? Are they more in line with Jesus? Do others recognize you as a Christian by the way you behave? Has a change been seen in you? By faith and trust in Christ, are you changing your old habits of unrighteousness to new righteous ones? Do you love Jesus? Because if you love Jesus, there will be changes manifested in your life. This is a very important topic. There have been many discussions about creature merit or earning salvation. Theologians have been arguing these things for hundreds of years, if not thousands. And Ellen White wrote something interesting about those discussions. Again, the book Faith and Works, page 23. She says, Discussions may be entered into by mortals strenuously advocating creature merit, and each man striving for the supremacy but they simply do not know that all the time, in principle and character, they are misrepresenting the truth as it is in Jesus. They are in a fog of bewilderment. They need the divine love of God, which is represented by gold tried in the fire. They need the white raiment of Christ's pure character, and they need the heavenly eye salve that they might discern with astonishment the utter worthlessness of creature merit to earn the wages of eternal life. Isn't that interesting? How much is creature merit worth? What's she say? She calls it utter worthlessness. Next page. Page 24. Same book. The Lord Jesus imparts all the powers, all the grace, all the penitence, all the inclination 
all the pardon of sins in presenting his righteousness for man to grasp by living faith, which is also the gift of God. If you would gather together everything that is good and holy and noble and lovely in man and then present the subject to the angels of God as acting a part in the salvation of the human soul or in merit, the proposition would be rejected as treason. Remarkable statement. She said, if you take everything that's good and noble in man, everything they've done, and you put it out there and you say, see what good man is, the work we've done, it merits us salvation, the angels would look at that and they would reject all that as treason against God. Salvation is not complicated. You know, it is a natural human tendency to want to do something to gain merit (laughs) so that we can be saved, but we can never be saved that way. And I guess there's a difference in the intent of the heart, isn't there? If you're doing it to earn something, you'll never be able to. But if you're doing it because you love Him, that's why Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. So I understand that going to church on the seventh day of the week to refrain from work, to keeping that fourth commandment, I'm not doing it out of ritual. I'm not doing it out of, of uh, well, i I got to do it because God will favor me if I do. I'm doing it because God asked me to do it. And what's interesting, friends, that I've discovered, maybe you have too, when you do the thing, things that God asks you to do because you love Him, and you, and you do the things that He's asked you to do, there's peace and joy in your heart. And I talked about this last time. When you bear that cross that Christ asked you to bear, He provides the strength to do it, and you find joy and peace. It's really an amazing thing. Faith and Works, page 64. He need not wait until he has made a suitable repentance before he may take hold upon Christ's righteousness. We do not understand the matter of salvation. It's just as simple as ABC. But we don't understand it. How can you receive the gift of salvation? How complicated is it? Do you have to go to college? Do you have to study as a doctor? Spend years? No, friends. You just acknowledge that Jesus is the Savior and Lord of your life. You can say something very simple from your heart. You say, Lord, I'm choosing to believe in Jesus as the Lord of my life and my Savior from sin. It's just that simple. And Jesus stated it in that simple language over and over and over again. And the apostles did too. We started out, Paul said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The apostle John, more than any other apostle, quoted Jesus' words on that subject. In John 5 verse 24, This is what we read. Very verily I say unto you, he that heareth my word 
and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation but is passed from death into life. Jesus says that to us, friends. Are we going to believe it? Do we look at that and go, no, it's much harder than that. No, it's not. God does not lie. Jesus was not a liar. John 6, verse 47, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I don't know. I I think it's obvious. That's not complicated. Jesus said, If you believe, if you trust and commit to me, if you believe in me, you have eternal life. There's much for us to be thankful for, friends. There are so many things that go on behind the scenes that we're completely unaware of that the Lord handles for us. Do you believe that? The angels He sends to surround us and protect us from evil and danger, they go unnoticed by us. We can't see them. And too often we forget to thank the Lord and thank them for their love and their care for us. And all these blessings come from God. He gives us these gifts. And this is what something James was speaking of in, in James 1.17. He says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is what? It's from above. It cometh down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. There's so much to be thankful for, yet we too often forget from whom the blessings flow. We think in order to get a blessing, there's something we have to do. Let's go back to the book Faith and Works, page 69, this time. The people had not been destroyed by the serpents in their long travel travails or travels through the wilderness. They had been an ungrateful people. We are just so. We do not realize the thousand dangers that our Heavenly Father has kept us from. We do not realize the great blessing that He has bestowed upon us in giving us food and raiment and preserving our lives by sending the guardian angels to watch over us. Every day we should be thankful for this. We ought to have gratitude stirring in our hearts and come to God with a gratitude offering every day. We ought to gather around the family altar every day and praise Him for His watch care over us. The children of Israel had lost sight that God was protecting them from the venomous beasts. But when He withdrew His hand, their sting was upon them. If we could just comprehend how simple the plan of salvation is, friends. All you have to do is choose to believe. Some may say they cannot believe. I've heard that before. I've run into that. They say their faith is too weak. My faith isn't strong enough. You remember Jesus saying to the man who had come to him pleading for help for his son? It's found in Mark 9. Jesus said to him, he said, if you can believe, everything is possible. And the man said to him in response, he said, Lord, I believe. But see, 
he was struggling with doubt, just the way people are today. And it is the devil's intention to try to destroy all who believe by causing them to doubt. That's why we're counseled over and over and over to remove doubt from our minds. Don't even go there. And, but this man was struggling with doubt and he said, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Do you struggle with doubt? Maybe I can encourage you. Let me read this to you. It's an article entitled Man's Utter Need from Signs of the Times, October 25, 1905. Faith comes by the Word of God. Then grasp the promise. Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. If you come to Jesus, He's not going to cast you out. Cast yourself at His feet with the cry, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Now, I want you to notice this. She says, you can never perish while you do this. Never. Jesus knows the circumstances of every soul. He turns no weeping, contrite one away. He does not tell to anyone all that He might reveal, but He bids every trembling soul take courage. Freely will He pardon all who come who come to Him for forgiveness and restoration. Well, friends, the plan of salvation is that simple. If we really believed it, we would be happy. We would be thankful. We would be rejoicing. We would be praising God every day for what He's done for us. In the wilderness, the children of Israel were told to look at the brass snake and be saved. It's Numbers Chapter 21, if you want to go read that. And in Isaiah 45, 22, the Lord says, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. Friends, this is not complicated. Are you willing to look? A brass snake cannot save anybody. The Lord says, If you look to me, I'll save you. And the problem we have is that we live in a world where the religion of Cain is more popular than the true religion. The religion of Cain says you have to do something for the Lord to save you. And that's deception. Friends, just come to Jesus just the way you are right now. With all your sins, with all your weaknesses. You can't make yourself better. In John 6.37, Jesus said, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will no wise cast out. If you'll come, He'll save you. If you look, He'll save you. You don't have to do some kind of work first. Just come to Jesus right now, just the way you are. With all your sins, with all your guilt, with all your failings, with all your past, come with everything that is wrong with you. He says, look to me, come to me, I'll save you. You do the coming, I'll do the saving. We cannot save ourselves, friends. The church cannot save us. And no human being can save us. Only Jesus can save us by grace. We just need to be willing to be made willing. It really is that simple. So look to Jesus, friends. Come to Him. 
and be saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for Jesus, for the gift of salvation through Him only. That it really is just that simple. And we recommit ourselves to Thee today. We give You our hearts. We're willing to be made willing, Lord. Send us the Holy Spirit to come into our hearts and minds and help us to be the people You wish us to be, to be like Jesus. We thank You for the angels You send to watch over us and to protect us and care for us. We pray that You bless them. And Lord, we pray that we will be prepared for that day when Jesus comes to receive us. Help us to prepare our families and our loved ones, our neighbors in the world, for that day is coming soon. We thank You for this Sabbath day. We look forward to worshiping on each Sabbath throughout eternity. We ask these favors in the blessed name of Jesus, who's worthy. Amen.